Grace, mercy, and peace be to you from God, our Father, and from our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Our text today is taken from the reading we heard in the book of Philippians as we continue through our series called Complete Joy. You may be seated. Let us pray. Father, we give you thanks that no matter where we find ourselves, your mercies remain true for us every day. We pray, O oh Lord, that you would teach us what it means that to live is Christ and to die is gain, so that we might conduct our lives in a manner that is more faithful to you, always trusting your promises. Now, O oh Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O oh Lord, our rock and our redeemer. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we are in the midst of confirmation season. Confirmation has been up and running here for about three weeks now, two weeks, three weeks. I don't know. They all run together for me. Uh, for a few weeks now, we've been uh, getting together with our confirmation students here on Wednesday nights during CLC together, 4.30 to 5.30 confirmation, 4.30 kids choir, 5 o'clock kids Bible study, uh, dinner, uh, Bible study, choir, uh, wonderful time. Please join us for all of it. You can be here this Wednesday and be a part of the fun. Ah, but we do have confirmation going on, and if you don't know what confirmation is, it is a time of study for our students so they might learn the promises and the realities that God has given to them in their baptism and learn to confess those things for themselves. To guide us through this process, we typically work through a little book called Luther's Small Catechism. The Catechism is a, a brief but very profound and deep overview of the entire Christian life. It talks about the Ten Commandments, the Apostles' Creed, the Lord's Prayer, uh, the sacraments, and, and what we should do to conduct our lives with our responsibilities and vocations in this world. And if you've ever studied the Catechism, you know that there is one question that functions as a refrain as you work through the whole book. Does anybody know what the question is? Uh, when you read, yes, Rachel, what's the question? What does this mean? Rachel, it's good that you know that as our confirmation teacher. What does this mean? It is a great question to ask in a lot of different parts of our life, certainly when we're studying God and his word. But you know, I think we find ourselves asking that question in a lot of other areas in life too, in a much more um, difficult and sometimes in a crisis moment. This past week, we commemorated 9-11 when the planes hit the building. I was in college when that happened, and the next year I went off to seminary. And the question that seemed to saturate so many of my classes at that time was, what does this mean? What does this mean for our country? What does this mean for our future? What does this mean concerning God and what he thinks about our country? Or we think about it maybe more recently with the whole COVID crisis. They've shut down the economy. They've shut down the country. They've shut down the jobs. They've shut down the churches. What does this mean for my family and my church and my, and my work? Sometimes we will find ourselves asking this question when we get bad news. I've got cancer. I've got some other form of disease. Someone in my family is very sick. What does this mean? What's God up to in this? Even in the Christian life, we get baptized and get all the promises of God that our sins are forgiven, that eternal life is ours. We come to church and we hear we're forgiven for our sins, we're free from our sins. And then what do we find? Sin, death, and the devil continue to knock on our door, continue to plague us, and we wrestle with the same old sins we've always seemed to wrestle with. What does this mean? Does it mean I'm not a strong enough Christian? Does it mean I'm lacking in something? What 
does this mean? So with this question weighing on us, we tend to run to the Bible for answers. It's at this moment where we'll turn to the scriptures to see if they can't guide us and help us figure out something of what's going on in this world around us. And sometimes that helps. And then sometimes you come to the Bible and you read the text and you go, what? (laughs) And you ask yourself a very interesting question. What does this mean? I can't figure any of this stuff out. Now I'm coming to the Bible for help and I'm even like more confused. What does it all mean? Well, I'll be honest with you. I found myself asking that very question this week as I was preparing this sermon on the book of Philippians. Because we come across a verse today from St. Paul, remember Paul, the author of the letter to the Philippians, where he says something, and I, and I don't know what he's talking about. I really wrestled with this all week. He says this phrase, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Now that sounds to me like a sermon I, I would preach uh, in a church that was a little more awake during the sermons, you know, and, and I would say that, and people would be like, mm-hmm, amen, to live is Christ, and someone would get all excited, and the rest of us would be in the room like, how are you excited? No one even, that's not even make sense grammatically. To live is Christ, Christ is a person. It's like saying, to live is Frank. I, I don't understand this. Further then, the next line he says, to live is Christ, which is already weird, and then he says, to die is gain. And that is, quite frankly, the opposite way we talk about death all the time. Because when we talk about death, what do we say? We have lost someone. Death for us is lost. They're no longer here with us. We can't see them or speak with them. They are lost. And we talk about the loss to society or to our family or to our church. To live is Christ and to die is gain? (laughs) What does this mean? Well, that's what we're going to kind of get into here today is as we dig deep into this text and really kind of pick it apart and see if we can't find some answers to our questions today and hopefully leave with a little bit of hope and confidence in the gospel. Because I think what Paul does with a phrase like this is that he invites us into a life where we begin to, to view every single aspect of our life, every single experience we have in the light of the gospel. Because Paul knows something that is true. That the reality of our life is this, is that there will be highs and there will be lows. There will be good and bad. Uh, There will be imprisonment for Paul. He's in prison when he writes this. Uh, And there will be times of joy and celebration. There will be life and there will be death. And when Paul tells us to live as Christ and die as gain, what he's doing is he's teaching us that we need to view all of these experiences that we have in our life through the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is to say, the way we filter everything is by remembering that we have a God in heaven who has given his one and only son to die on the cross for our sins, who lived the perfect life in our place, who rose from the grave and promised us everlasting life, that death is not the end for us, but a blessed sleep from which we will arise. And now, when we have this gospel, we can see things very differently in the world around us. So let's dive into this this morning. What do we mean when we say to live is Christ and to die is gain? We're going to break it up into two phrases here. The first, to live is Christ. Paul breaks it down for us this way. He says this, uh, Paul, uh, excuse me, if I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. 
Yet which I shall choose I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is far more necessary on your account. I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith. Here's the context in which Paul writes that. Paul is suffering. He's in jail. We've said this a lot. We're going to revisit that theme throughout this series, so just kind of get used to it. But remember, Paul doesn't write this joyful letter when he wakes up one morning in the Marriott Hotel just before he goes downstairs for his runny eggs and pancake batter. Like, he's writing this from a place where he is in prison, where his life is on the line every single day. And he knows that at this point, if he dies, if the soldiers decide to take his life, if the Lord decides it's time for Paul to be done, he's ready to be with the Lord. But he also knows that he can keep going, he can keep fighting, he can keep standing up for himself. And in doing this, that will be of great benefit to the other churches, to the Philippians, to the congregations that Paul is in contact with. So for him to continue to suffer he recognizes, is going to be good news for other people because through his sufferings, the other churches are encouraged. We already saw this last week that as as Paul suffers, what happens? The gospel spreads throughout the guard there in the prison. The churches are getting more bold in sharing the faith on account of his suffering. So Paul says, listen, for me to be in prison and suffering in this way, it's not a whole lot of fun for me physically, but the reality is, is that God continues to use me in my difficult situation to spread the gospel and strengthen people in the faith. That because I am able to continue to to preach and teach and work in this way, you all continue to progress in your faith and in your joy in the gospel. Paul knows that his life is being conformed to the image of Jesus, that just as Jesus suffered for our sakes, so Paul's suffering is being used by Jesus for our sake and for the sake of the church. So I think this is what he's getting at when he says to live as Christ. To live as Christ, in order to figure out what that means, you kind of have to ask yourself the question, how did Christ live? And you know what the answer is? For you. Christ lived for you, for his beloved church. Christ died for you and for his beloved church. Christ rose again and rules and reigns for you and for his beloved church. It's a wonderful practice to get into. Whenever we work through the Apostles' Creed or the Nicene Creed, and we get to the section on on Jesus, and it says we believe uh, in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit. At this point in the back of your minds, you should say something like this. He was conceived by the Holy Spirit, or conceived by the Holy Spirit for me. Born of the Virgin Mary, for me. Suffered under Pontius Pilate, for me. Was crucified, died, and was buried, for me. And on and on the list goes. Jesus Christ did all of this for you. He was born of the Virgin Mary and took on your flesh so that he might be your brother and your representative throughout his whole life. Then he goes to the cross where he dies for you by suffering the wrath of God, the just wrath of God that your sins deserve all fall on Jesus so that God has no condemnation left for you. 
And then he rises again from the dead to announce to you that you, yes, you have all of your sins forgiven and eternal life is prepared for you so that you, as we just sang, will be forever with the Lord. All of this Jesus has done for you and now he rules over you and reigns over you and is accomplishing everything uh, that's going on in your life. He's working through all of that to prepare you for eternal life with him in heaven, him in the Holy Spirit. All of Christ's suffering, his passion, his bloody sweat, his brutal death and shameful cross were suffered for you, and he sacrificed and suffered all of this for you and your sake so you would be saved. So that when Paul says, for me to live is Christ, is Paul saying, for me to live is to recognize that my sufferings are going to benefit the people that God loves. Now, Paul's not saying he's equal to Jesus in this, not at all. But he does recognize that now as Christians, the suffering we go through, the hardship we face, can be used by God even for the sake of those who are around us. And just think how this helps us reorient things just a little bit. I will have a lot of conversations with people that when they're going through bad times, they'll say, I don't know what I did to deserve this. I don't know why God is punishing me. I don't know why I have to suffer in this way. And Paul would say, God is not punishing you. Remember, we're looking at our suffering through the lens of the cross, and we remember through the lens of the cross that there is now no condemnation for you and I who are in Christ Jesus. That this hardship is not God with some leftover anger that he didn't get rid of on the cross or something weird like this. Paul knows he's not in jail because God is uh, angry at some leftover sins. It's not karma. Paul knows that this suffering is not God punishing him, but that in fact, and this is like even, now you're like, what does even this next sentence mean? That this suffering we get can even be recognized as a gift from God. Listen to what he says. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him, but suffer for his, his sake. Merry Christmas! <laughs> Engaged in the same conflict that you saw that I had, and now here that I still have. Paul figures, listen, if suffering isn't God punishing us, then he must be giving it to us for a good reason. That God must be using this in some way for our benefit. And we can think of a number of ways God does this with our suffering. With our hardships, as painful as it is, he does teach us how to trust him more. The more hardship we go through, the more we find ourselves in prayer turning to God. And sometimes those prayers learn to be a little bit more honest and a little bit more aggressive and a little bit more lamenting. But at least we're learning to turn to God. And Paul is recognizing that through this process, this, this difficult process, we're being refined as gold through the fire. But there's a sanctification going on here that's drawing us closer to Christ. This is why he can say, he who began this good work and you will bring it to completion on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. That even the hardships and sufferings we go through, God is using them to bring us to completion on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. So that to live as Christ means that as we suffer in this life, God is doing at least these two things. Showing us to trust him more. Sanctifying us. That's all his work. And then third, he's teaching us how to die. 
And he's showing us that he can work through us even as we die. Even as we are weak and incapable of doing anything, God is using our sufferings even still to work through us for the sake of others. For when we are weak and literally at our weakest, he is strong. That there can be, as Rachel said in her children's message, a really good children's message. I thought we were going to get like a bad Trinity analogy, but no, that was really good, really good. That whatever state we're in, whatever state we're in, God can work through that for the sake of our neighbors. And this is something you need to hear. Something I need to hear. Because we live in a world right now where we think life's goal is to be free from suffering and hardship. And we have all the right medicines and all the right diets and all the right entertainment systems to make us think that we should and can be free from suffering and hardship. And all of this we use to deny the fact that one day we are going to die. We work in a society that works very hard to deny death. I know this is exactly like the fun conversation you wanted to have this morning. The reality is, friends, that you're going to die unless Christ comes first. This is just the harsh reality. This is what the scriptures tell us. They teach us to number our days. We're going to suffer in this life, and we're going to die unless Christ returns. But even when you are dying, God is still working on you and working through you to help others see his mercy and his love. This is a hard one, and I'm going to say this today uh, uh, I've, I've wrestled with whether or not I should talk about this, but I think this is actually very helpful for us to think about, given the reality, knowing that one day we may face death. We will face death. A lot of conversations I have with people, and I have a lot of conversations with people on their deathbed, and they always ask me this question. Why does God still have me? What, what does this mean? Why am I lying here on this bed? I'm not doing anything. I'm just... I'm just a burden to everyone else. Why won't the Lord just take me? Doesn't Paul say it's better to be with the Lord? Yes, he just said that. So let me have the better. I'm ready to go. Why does he still have me here? I don't know. I haven't, I don't get like the emails from God on these things. I don't know the answers to this question. But don't ever think that even in that situation, God is not still at work through you for the sake of someone else. Because even as you lie there dying, even as people lie there dying, they can show others what it means to die faithfully. That you find yourself still praying, still having visits from the pastors and members of the church to bring you communion, to talk to you, to pray with you. You still, you know, maybe this is a wonderful evangelistic opportunity for you to invite that person in your life you love who's kind of wandered away to read to you portals of prayer every day. Here you are lying there and you're not able to do anything and it's at this point when you are at your weakest where the Lord is showing the rest of us what it means to be faithful unto death. And we look at you and we say, wow, look at the faith. And we pray and hope that we can go in a similar way. You feel like you're doing nothing and God is working through you to accomplish incredible things. So to live as Christ means that we can live and die still trusting and still being used by Jesus. We can live and die this way because we know the truth that for us, 
Death is not the end. No, to die, says St. Paul, is gain. Now what does that mean? Well, it means that death, this horrible enemy of humanity, has been beaten, conquered by Jesus. I mean, death almost becomes for Jesus his little patsy. Because what does death mean for the Christian? Nothing more than that you're going to be with the Lord. The Lord Jesus who's going to bring you to the resurrection and to eternal life. To die for the Christian is to be with Jesus. That's why we don't, we don't fear it. That's why we need not fear anyone in this world and what they would do to us. That is why we need not fear anything that comes our way. And there's a lot that comes our ways. Wars, rumors of wars, enemies, diseases, death, whatever. We don't need to fear any of that because Jesus Christ is already in your baptism prepared you for death by preparing a place for you with him, with him and his Father for all of eternity. And that's the key. So we don't talk about death as being a loss. Sure, we feel like we've lost somebody. They're not around anymore. We don't see them. They're not with us. We miss them. But for those who die in the faith, they're not lost. We know right where they are. For them, to die is gain, for they are with Jesus. Which, as St. Paul tells us, is far better. To live as Christ, to die is gain. What does this mean? This means that whether you live or you die, no matter what your situation is in life, you belong to the Lord. You need not fear life nor death. For Jesus Christ, who loves you and forgives you all of your sins, is using everything in your life to draw you ever closer to himself so that you will be, all in his account, forever with the Lord. This is most certainly true. Amen we pray. Heavenly Father, teach us to number our days. Teach us to trust you that you have prepared a place for us in your presence for all of eternity. Grant us your Son, Jesus, and keep us steadfast unto the end. It's in his name we pray. Amen.